damn it. And we're live. Awesome. It's so nice to see you. It's so nice to see you. I, I have to tell you, Jill, I'm really, really excited about you. I love this book. I, I have here, I want to show you. I have like, okay, just so you know, this That's is incredible. This is such a great reference book, which is really, I really, really wanted to talk about it um, on Private Practice Grief because, you know, I have, you know, you and I, I, I love that. Well, we love about, you know, resources. Resources are so important to share, especially about how to deal with grief. And I just heard your podcast on um, Very Bad Therapy. <laughs> Do you love that? <laughs> And, it was, and I have to tell you, um, uh, uh, when did you do it? About three weeks ago, two or three mm -hmm. weeks ago? Yeah. So I noticed that I started getting people requesting to come on the group. And you know what? I, I, I get that. It's usually that somebody's, you know, talked about the group right. somewhere. And so I'm like, I have no idea where these people are coming from. And I think it was like last, uh, just a few days ago, I was like, oh. Oh, people started going, oh, I heard it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to know what not to do. <laughs> yes, exactly. And what to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that was a really fun podcast. And, you know, there's so many ways people can be really terrible grief therapists and so many ways that we can be really good ones. Yeah. And yeah. so many ways we can support people before someone dies, during mm -hmm. the dying process and after the dying process. Yeah. And it's not just for our clients. No, therapists die too. It's this thing, you know. Yeah, we have deaths in our own families. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Yes, you know. So, um, you know, here's what was surprising to me when I read it um, is that I had expected it to be a book about after your spouse dies, after your partner dies, and was you know wonderfully surprised of oh wow wait a minute. Where do I have it here? Uh -huh. It's about a third, a third, a third. I have a half. <laughs> I, I, I've like torn this apart because you know if I'm gonna if I'm gonna do an interview with you, I'm like I'm not gonna fake it. I'm like no, I like need to know, show. know the book. Yeah. Um, but I love that it was the second half that you know that was afterwards. But there's so much here that so many people need to know. There is, there really is. And you know, I've had, I've had this week and a half or two weeks of people coming in and seeing me and messaging me because I get a lot of contacts that way saying so-and-so is sick in my family and I don't know what to do. And mm -hmm. we, I think we need hospice and I don't know how, or our hospice is doing this. Mm -hmm. a, a grief therapist we both know had a hospice yanking their family around and she was so caught up in the things that she didn't think about. I can fire these people. And, you know, we need to know this stuff and it's not that, stuff we talk about it. Just like we don't talk about grief. We don't talk about chronic illness, terminal illness. Dying. Right. 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 Yeah. I love that you start from the very beginning of the book from the DOD mm -hmm. um, of date of diagnosis. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just as powerful as the other DOD. Date right. Because that's where everything all of a sudden everything changes. Right, the earthquake um, happens. And you, I just want to, I just want to highlight this for people because it really caught me. I might get a little teary. Um, I, you say, 
Um, uh, no one says this in marriage advice books, okay? But that this is the most intimate that, you know, uh, that ever occurs in any marriage, most intimate moment. And I was really struck by that because, it is. you know, yeah, is, you know, I, uh, a few months ago, uh, got diagnosed um, with something that alters my life, damn it. And I have to say, sharing this with my husband, I, I was like, I am in love with you in a whole nother way. And I loved you before, but right. holy shit. You know? It opens up all this other stuff in the marriage oh and, and in your relationship if you do yeah. it that way. Rather yeah. than closing off and trying to do it all by yourself, which right. not so good. Right. Yeah. So, um, so you know what? So you, so can you talk a little bit more about kind of the beginning of the book and what you would, you know, want uh, clinicians to to be to know, kind of a heads up. The book I wrote is not. I mean, it sounds sort of autobiographical, and it does sound like it's after death. And my my editor both, you know, they were like, you know, you should have something in there that says it's before death. But I really like the rebellious widow. It just sort of fits. I like it too. My personality. Yeah. So, um, but it needed to be something that would help both clinicians and the public, mm -hmm. the everyday person, manage an illness, acknowledge that it's terminal, mm -hmm. be able to handle all the stuff because there is so much paperwork and money and drama that goes on in an illness. Yeah. It needed to be, this is how death really happens. Mm -hmm. This is what to expect because again, we don't talk about it and right. hospices are busy and COVID has really taken the energy out of a lot of hospices because they're so freaking busy mm -hmm. and it needed to be what to do afterward to take all that stuff you did at the beginning and apply it to the after. Mm -hmm. And and it came from um, when Linda started getting sick and was dying. And then when Casper started to get sick, I did it again. I wrote blogs mm -hmm. because I, I needed to not take energy from family time wow. while I was working full time to return mm -hmm. phone calls and emails. Nobody should have to do that. Right. Nobody. Right. And therapists, if you're listening and you've got someone who's saying I'm spending all my time keeping up the family, tell them to stop boundaries mm -hmm. right there boundaries yep. and it left them with the ability to um sorry i was looking to see if there were any comments it left them with the ability to know what was going on if they wanted to mm -hmm. but it didn't force me to have conversations because mm -hmm. actually no therapist wants to talk on the phone after work anyway i don't right. know about you but i don't i hate my phone yes <laughs> yep Yep. If you want to text me, I'll respond. Yes. Sometimes. Don't my call me. Yes. Right. My staff you. knows that too. That's the message. Yes. You don't call me. I don't talk to anybody after I've been doing the training. You know, your son hardly gets, you know, me to talk. Yeah. Right. I just need some quiet time. And so when you're bombarded with being the partner. Of, you don't have time. Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote the blogs and then when I put them all together, there were 350 pages and that was a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I pulled them together and I met with a couple of editors and I said, it has to be all my words, but I want it to do something. Mm -hmm. 
and so we 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 fought and pushed around a little bit and then framed it out and then i did the writing and then she'd say okay you can pick from one of these three blogs to put in and i'd say i like my writing i can't pick you choose you be the hatchet person right so by the time we finished there were actually two extra books left that are still just sitting on my desktop <laughs> of all the stuff that got chopped but I, we, we need to give partners permission to be partners mm -hmm. and to maintain right. that intimate relationship yeah in whatever is left of it as illness progresses yeah and and we need to teach folks how to set boundaries so they get that time mm -hmm. and we need to teach providers to treat a couple as a couple when someone's dying mm -hmm. Because yeah. we don't, we treat them yeah. as a patient and a caregiver. Right, right. And that oh, separates God. them. You're so right. And That's I know right. this shit. And you're right. so right. But we yeah. don't say it. You know, we don't even think about it. I, I did a training, um, did a presentation for the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor, which I just mm -hmm. love. And I did it with a hospice nurse. And I, it was on intimacy and how to talk mm -hmm. about intimacy. Mm -hmm. at end of life. And she said, I owe every hospice family I've worked with in the last 30 years an apology. <laughs> I never brought that up. Right. Right. Cause nobody does. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's, Definitely. that's why it's there. I probably went way off track with that conversation, but that, you know, that's why I did it. <laughs> I, I actually, I don't think you went off track at all. There are so many tracks. Mm -hmm. Ah, I want to say you are so detailed. Um, I, you know, I have a little note to myself of, you know, your advice and tips and strategies are so incredibly detailed, um, which I think is so needed when, you know, when somebody's world has turned completely upside down and, you know, they're trying to take care of their partner and they're kind of like, <coughs> now what do I do? Right. And, um, and so I love how really incredibly detailed that you are in this. It's the boots on the ground, what to do stuff. Yeah. Because we don't learn this stuff. No, no. And when we take grief in school, mm -hmm. nobody teaches this. Oh, well, well, actually, so I teach practical class <laughs> over, at, over at Pepperdine. And so usually my first, well, actually next Wednesday will be my first class for the fall semester. And so... My students always hear the first week. So you signed up for practicum. Guess what? <laughs> <laughs> You're also going to get uh, a whole bunch of information about grief for the whole semester. Now, look, I honestly, I won't grade you on it. However, okay. <laughs> you need the information. Right. And you, right. I want you to include losses in your case histories. <laughs> You yeah. know, because they don't teach that. We get students. No. We now have a nonprofit and mm -hmm. we have students and we have associates that we grow up into therapists. Mm -hmm. And it's not I, in their training. Yeah. Yeah. Not anywhere. Yeah. Which makes us crazy. And, you know, when I know, you know, it's your mission, it's my mission. It's, you know, a few everybody in the private practice griefs mission. We got to do this better. Yeah. We got to. We got to get information out there because we're hungry for it. Yeah. And our clients, you know, need it so, so much. You know? Yeah. I just uh, gave, I just gave the group's name out to two other classes I'm teaching. So oh, be good. prepared for more. There'll be more good. joining because we need them. Yeah. 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 Ah, 
Um, I love you have also, there's just so much in here. You have a whole chapter on explaining hospice, which you were just kind of referring to, um, which, which I think was wonderful. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, you know, people, you know, clinicians, I like to share chapters of books with, with my clients. I actually sometimes will say, you know, you might want to get this book, but then I'll say, you know, here, let's just share, let's just go over this chapter because we know they don't have a whole lot of, you know, right. of space in their head. Um, but that was such a great, a great explanation. Can you talk a little bit more about that part? I explained what hospice is, not to be afraid of it. Mm -hmm. um, importantly, that you can request it, if, even if your doctor's not suggesting mm -hmm. it. Because lots of doctors don't make those referrals until literally hours before someone dies, right? So sorry, that's one of our noodles with the collapsing trachea. Um, and, you know, in hospice, I would see people come home and they were already comatose. Mm -hmm. And what they'd been asking for was to go home and have time with their family, with their kids. And they just kept things going at the hospital so long it was too late by the time they got home. Hospice can be there six months before someone dies right. with a reasonable expectation of death, which doesn't mean that if you're not gone in six months, you have to quit hospice. Right. But hospice brings in the social worker, the chaplain, the nurse case manager, the other nurse team, the, the certified nurses assistants who do or the home health aides who do the intimate bathing. And they don't just bathe. They do nails. You know, they shave. They they change the sheets out. By the time someone has their first bed bath mm -hmm. or shower on a shower chair, which is an awkward moment, yeah. they feel so refreshed and so comfortable. Mm -hmm. They've been powdered. They've been lotioned. And their, their loved one didn't have to do it. I have to tell you, I have never heard hospice described like that. Okay. Really? Yeah. It's, oh, you know, they're going to make you comfortable, but not, uh, you describe it in such a loving way. And it, it was a loving way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I'm hospice through and through. I did it for many years yeah. and you have to be a hospice person to do hospice. Not, not everybody can do hospice right? Um, or share our sense of humor, which is mm -hmm. totally twisted and should not be allowed outside the outside <laughs> closed doors. But you know, it's it's a nurse that you get to know, and it's your case manager who yeah. knows the family, and mm -hmm. make sure that the nurses who see you in between their visits is reporting to them. It's a doctor who makes a home visit and can spend time with you. Okay, Doug. Yeah, we we have hospice at home with our dogs, um, and 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 like how many doctors make home visits, right? Right. And right. we'll hear what you're saying. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. When my first wife was dying, our doctor made a home visit a couple days before she died because she took a turn really fast. Mm -hmm. She was up and walking. She was bed bound for six days and she died. It was super fast drop. And um, I know it's because she was just pushing herself really, really hard to stay going as long as she could. Mm -hmm. And he came out and he met with me and he said, you know, I know we said we we're going to have a glass of wine on the porch. And this just happened too fast. We're going to have to have one in heaven. You're going to be there soon and I'll make sure you're comfortable. Mm. Like, How many doctors say that? Right. Right. That's what hospice is. Yeah. And he's now a friend of mine. We, you know, occasionally hang out and do stuff together. Mm -hmm. He's that hospice doc. Every hospice doc is that doctor. Mm -hmm. 
right? And that's what hospice does. You have a chaplain who, yes, they can be religious or spiritual or whatever, but they can also just come out and read books with you or chat with you or provide support for you. Mm. Linda refused to allow our chaplain to do anything religious. She wasn't comfortable with that. So they had book club. And every other week, the chaplain would show up and they'd read a book together for two hours. That's right? awesome. That's it awesome. is. And then the social worker can do funeral planning or help with finances, but can also do emotional support, can work with the kids. Yeah. I've sat down on the ground in front of someone's hospital bed with all the grandkids and the great grands. And we've drawn pictures for them about what they're going to remember about them mm -hmm. and done the family circle together. I've met with a group of second graders at a mortuary in front of their teacher's casket uh -huh. and the school arranged for everyone to come. Mm -hmm. And we, we did the same thing, pictures and memories and the kids who wanted to tuck them into the casket did. Mm -hmm. And the ones who, wanted to have somebody else or me do it. We did that for them. It totally normalized dying. Great. It totally gave them the opportunity to say goodbye. Right. It diminished the parents' freak out status mm -hmm. that, that the kids understood the teacher died. Yeah. And it gave the family this sense of, oh my goodness, she really did make a difference. Look at that. Yeah. 30 kids and their parents showed up today. That, that she mattered. That's hospice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what hospice should be. If you have a hospice mm -hmm. that doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't have a doctor who makes home visits, mm -hmm. doesn't have a pharmacy that delivers, yep. cannot guarantee continuous care. Mm -hmm. Write that down, continuous care. Yep. At the time that symptoms change, mm -hmm. then you fire them and hire someone else. Yeah. You don't have to use any hospice because hospice mm -hmm. is a carve out mm -hmm. under Medicare and right. insurance companies follow the same procedure. Yep. So even if you're XYZ HMO, you mm -hmm. can tell a XYZ HMO hospice to pound sand mm -hmm. and bring in someone else. Yep. And nobody tells you that. Right. Nobody knows that. Yeah. Right. Hospice yeah. should be there all the way through. They should be there mm -hmm. to pronounce the death. Mm -hmm. They should help with preparing the body if that's what somebody wants. Yeah. They should wait until the mortuary comes if it's not mm -hmm. crazy busy. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's hospice. You know, I, and uh, what the, the word that screams in my head right now is, um, is your passion for advocacy. You know, uh, a social worker. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, actually, I really appreciate that. Uh, being an LM, MFT, I worked in hospitals for 15 years under an LCSW and that made You're an honorary LCSW. Huge <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this is a this is a, again, this is such a great resource for clinicians. Um, you know, I'll, I had a, a client that had come in recently uh, last year. Her her brother had been dying, and she her biggest fear, and we hear this from our clients is, well, when am I going to know, and what's it going to look like? And I love that you have a whole chapter on those signs. You know, I usually have referred to, I have this one booklet that I had gotten years ago and I get it out, you know, and I, I, I Xerox it, you know, and I copy it and go, Oh, here, here. And, and people are very appreciative of, Oh, oh yeah. And so this is, this is better than that's my, the handout. Yeah. 
<laughs> it is. And yeah. if you know if clinicians need to photocopy it for their clients, then they should because people yeah. should know what's happening and they should yeah. be able to see death is approaching. Yeah. And they shouldn't be afraid of it. And they mm -hmm. should know all the sounds mm -hmm. and signs and know what can be done about them and know that their loved one's not uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And not be afraid of all the drugs. Please. Right. <laughs> use right. the drugs. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. I'm yeah. not a nurse, but use the drugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, they get really scared of, oh, you know, I think being an addict, it's like, wait a minute, it's processed differently in your body. And if you don't know that. Yeah. The theory is that you are causing them to die prematurely. And in fact, you're just giving them a peaceful death. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we should, as clinicians, know those things so that when somebody comes in with grief, mm -hmm. we can rework what they just witnessed and take yes. all of that heaviness out of it. I agree. I agree. Cause I, you know, I listen for people's regrets and their resentments and the regrets often is, you know, comes out as guilt of, Oh, what I could have done. And, you know, to be able to help them, you know, get different information of wait a minute for as many people who end up waiting for you to be there to die. There's also an equal number of people that, can't die in front of you right. and people to know that yeah, yeah. can be very relieving mm -hmm. they, they they told you all along that you were not going to be present right and they made sure right. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um uh it, so here i wanted to switch over mm -hmm. to the second half of your book and you talk about, and you write this so well, of uh, the two paths with grief and that new grief paradigm. So can you talk to our clinicians about that? So the grief paradigm I work from is the one that says, we can work through what's not finished mm -hmm. and all the trauma from the dying process, because that's important. Mm -hmm. That's why you need to know the dying process. And you can take that anticipatory grief mm -hmm. stuff that they did already yep. and turn that into an early reorganization and help somebody finish the lefts and finish and start the reorganizing and move into a healing process mm -hmm. where they take an accurate memory of the person who died, yeah. not that angelic person they heard about from the front right. of the mortuary or the church, right. right? And then recreate their life in a hopeful way, you will still miss the person who died. Mm -hmm. You're always going to miss somebody who died. Mm -hmm. That That's a given. But right. you don't have to call it grief. You don't have to say someone's mourning for the rest of their life. That adds like an extra heaviness. Mm -hmm. So part of it is, is truly semantics, but part of it is outlook mm -hmm. versus the somebody's died. You're going to miss them forever. You're going to grieve forever. Rose Kennedy's famous statement, you know, mm -hmm. Granted, the woman had a lot of losses and probably didn't get the right kind of help for it, but you don't have to grieve forever. Right. And I don't want my clients grieving forever. The ones who find me tend to find me because of my social media and like, I'm sick of this. I don't want to do this anymore. And I want, I want my clients and I want our fellow clinicians to help people set those boundaries so people can determine their own way of doing things. Mm -hmm. They determine how slow, how fast, yep. 
they can put themselves on the um, scale from Jill to Betty White in terms of how fast they make changes. (laughs) And they can support their client in the decisions they make instead of guiding them into, you know, the old, don't make any changes for a year. Don't do this. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that supports that in the research. Well, no. And, and I think it's so harmful when people hear that. And by the way, you know, we know too many clinicians who have been taught that, you know, uh, well, you know, you just got to wait for a year. Don't make any, you know, you know, decisions. Um, What is a year going to do? Right. And it's like, well, you know, then what happens after that magic year? Well, I thought it was supposed to be better. Well, you know, yeah, no. false expectations and it's right. overwhelming. Right. Yeah. And that used to be what we were taught when I did hospice right. a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. The, the stuff that we bought from the major people who are still the major people in mm-hmm. grief, mm-hmm. their actual criteria, their stuff that they sold for groups said, don't make any changes for a year. Right. Don't get too close to the people in your grief group. Right. Don't do this. Don't, none of that is supported <gasps> by research. Wow. You know what? I have never heard the don't get too close to the people in the grief group. Yeah. Because they don't want relationships. And I know, uh, in fact, actually I have somebody coming in later on today who her grief group, she did individual work with me and she also did grief group because I think that we can be helpful in both modes. Right. Yeah. I I'll take a little side turn right now is because one of my things is, you know what? Uh, we usually, you know, uh, clinicians have been taught, oh, well, you know, you got to refer them out to a group because group is the only method that will be able to help them. And it's like, yeah, I want to go, ah, no. And then they don't know what groups they're referring them to. Well, yes. And I, and one of my pieces of advice is I usually say, if you're going to refer them out to a group, then you, you know, do your homework first and call that group and find out some more information about it. So I love that this woman was in that group and in individual. And when that group ended, which ended about after a year and a half, um, she still meets with uh, with members of that group. Uh, they meet about once a month. And that that is one of her lifelines. And that's frequent. Right. When I did groups, I broke that rule all the time. I'm like, okay, it's noon. You guys go have a bite to eat. And the last day of group, I go with them. Because... <laughs> Yeah. They're the ones who understand each other right, right. more it's, than their families understand them. Yeah. And they can share what they're hearing from other people and laugh about it. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. it find that humor that they need. Mm-hmm. They don't get elsewhere. Yes. Yes. You know, is that, you know, I think grief can be um, uh, very absurd at times. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my brother had cancer and he uh, had at one point um, we were in the hospital lobby picking up some medication for him. <laughs> and um, it was, he was very nauseous. And so it was composing. And the guy says, well, Mr. Jenkins, yelling at everywhere. Uh, I just want to let you know, we only have 12 suppositories for you. We didn't have the full amount. Do you need any directions? <laughs> and my brother, who was 30, 30, how old was he at the time? He was 27 at the time. And dying of embarrassment. 
he was absolutely mortified. Um, and I still remember we went outside afterwards after we after he like grabbed it and um, it was February. So it was snowing. It was back in Connecticut. And we just howled because he started yelling, suppository, suppository, anybody want a suppository? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think grievers have those stories, you know, they do. Uh, along the way, you know, and they, you know, you and I have talked about that grievers feel crazy. They do. They walk in and they and say, they're I'm like they're crazy. crazy. Yeah. Is this really going to end? And I say, you're not crazy. Yeah. You're grieving. Yeah. Your, your brain is wrapped in cotton batting. It doesn't mm -hmm. process well. Right. Right. You're stumbling right. over stuff you never you didn't even know was on the floor because you're not mm -hmm. thinking clearly and reacting well. Mm -hmm. That's grief. Yeah. Nobody knows that. Right. And the average therapist doesn't know that. Exactly. And the average therapist will say, you know, you need to sleep eight hours. This getting up at 2 a.m. It's not good for you. No mm -hmm. griever sleeps at two in the morning. Right. Right. It's unusual. Yeah. And um, and I'm going to throw in a bit about not just, you know, kind of, you know, finding out how they're sleeping or when they're sleeping. But I also like to ask, where are they sleeping? Right. Because it's usually yeah. when you're in the lazy boy. Yeah. Yeah. And because my crew. <laughs> yes. You know, I know uh, uh, several of my clients have said, you know what? I it's too uncomfortable. It, it's too painful for me to go back to our bed together. You know, or I'll ask, you know, if you're sleeping is, you know, what side of the bed? Right. Oh, and I, after the training that I had done, a clinician contacted me afterwards and said, oh, my God, that makes so much sense. After my mom died, my father, he kept sleeping on my mom's side of the bed and he would cover himself with some of my mom's clothing. And I thought he was weird. I was like, well, no, he probably wanted that smell and that touch he needed that presence yeah 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 absolutely and lots of grievers who've done long-term care end up with injuries so yeah. sometimes sleeping in a different like in that easy chair kind of a thing supports mm -hmm. their back and shoulders mm -hmm. but it makes the family crazy because but you've got to go to bed right you got to be in your own bed yeah right there's an answering service for funeral directors um, called answering ASD answering service for directors. Mm -hmm. They actually have therapists who work the night shift to answer the phone oh, for their oh, crisis. Yeah. Because grievers realize from the moment they make that call that those people never go to sleep. Yeah. So there's always someone they can reach. Yeah. And yeah. that's one of the places that they reach out to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that way the family doesn't know they're up in the morning, you know, like two in the morning and feeling sort of yeah. crisis oriented. Yeah. 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 Um, oh my gosh. Uh, what else would you like to share? Uh, what do you want clinicians to also know? Think about? I want them to make sure that when they are seeing someone for grief the first time, like you, that they're just listening and that they're listening for what happened in that story. Mm -hmm. They're listening for the additional losses mm -hmm. that have not been processed. Mm -hmm. Um, that they can dive deep into what happened during the whole process from that DOD to the other DOD. Yeah. And I want them to practice setting some boundaries with their clients, you know, even in silly ways. Like, so when someone walks up to you and says, you know, aren't you glad they're in a better place? You know, what three things could you say instead of you're so right or thank you, right? How do you respond to those things? 
give our grievers some power and some control back. Mm -hmm. They've had all of that taken. Yep. Yeah. And I and love sure. mm -hmm. I love that you include a piece of that of here. Let's let's kind of role model this because mm -hmm. that is a fear I know for so many grievers of, you know, I don't know what to say. We I know you and I both talked with our clients a lot about, okay helpful and was so unhelpful uh, so that they feel more comfortable later on to be able to come in and say oh here's what i heard this week so i love you you know that you do a role model or an advocate for that of okay what can you say because that's really so paralyzing for them right right and if you're going to tell your clients to journal give them some kind of prompt because someone uh, who's grieving doesn't do well with a blank piece of paper uh, <laughs> right i mean to be honest nobody really does and even as therapists we don't journal on blank pieces of paper so i will tell people that i will say you know what I, any writing that we do we're going to do i'm going to do in session with you because frankly you're you're not going to do it i'm just going to tell you that it's unusual that i have somebody who says oh no no no, i want homework oh, okay but right do some work here yeah yeah yep yeah um Okay, what else? Send your clients home with hope and tell them that this is not going to feel yep. this way for the rest of their life. Yep. I know it's going to change. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that's one of the most important things that we, that we can uh, give our clients from the very first session. I know mm -hmm. at the end of the, the first session with anybody that comes here to our center is, you know, to say, you know, I'm going to hold, I usually say, I'm going to hold the hope for you. You don't have to have hope. Okay. We're not telling them, you know what, you know, oh, you know, everything's going to be better. Right. You know, it's not I, happy days are here again, I but believe that anyway, something will get, will get better over time. Yeah. Yeah. And let yeah. them remember the person for who they really were. Mm -hmm. Don't make them hold on to some Which image of them that other people are telling them to have, because if yeah. they can't talk to you yeah. about who they really were, yeah. They're not going to be able to finish anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh. Okay. Well, I really, really appreciate mm -hmm. you, you know, doing this interview and <laughs> figured it out. And got all the tech yeah. put together. Yes. And, and uh, I'll send you the link. Okay. And then all I'll right. it. And uh, thank you, Jill. Thank you, Debbie. Hello to everyone in private practice grief. There'll be more people coming. Awesome. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay.